God-centered ministry, 1 Samuel chapter 12. This chapter is his final address as the judge, uh, prophet slash judge, over the nation. The nation will be moving from a judgeship to a monarchy. The king will take its place, and there will be some radical differences, and they will be put on the people. Every servant wants a splendid ministry. When it's all said and done, when this life is finished, we do want to hear the Lord say, well done, well done. Samuel is a man who heard that, and of course in glory now, had this God-centered ministry. Jesus, of course, it was said, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And that was true not only of the Lord, but a man like Samuel and others. Paul uh, had such a ministry. And I, I think it's very important that Christians do not lose sight of that. If you think you just have a good relationship with God, but everybody can't stand you, <laughs> the Christians, everybody then maybe there is an, an issue. Um, he spoke of his God in such a personal way that Samuel did, and as if God was never far off from him, always centered on him from the time he was just a wee lad. This comes out in this chapter in a very unique way. 32 times in 25 verses, we hear the covenant name Yahweh. All of them spoken by Samuel except one time. I mean, he almost couldn't finish a sentence without mentioning the covenant name of the Lord. Because he was so focused on God. This, again, is his last address as the leader of the nation. And so now we look at verse 1. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. Well, the last clause, of course, lets us know that he heeded them concerning the king, not in everything. Um, the, the, he was the prophet of God. He told the people what God wanted. He did not let the people tell the prophet to tell God what they wanted. Uh, although there's some of that, of course, in intercessory, intercessory prayer. But that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, he says that he did not continue to resist their plea when God made it clear that this was the direction the people were going in, that the children of Jacob were going to ha have a king now. And once Samuel heard it from God, like it or not, he was off and running with what he was supposed to do. He had his orders, and, uh, and he was going to carry them out. And many good men over the centuries and women have done just that. They have received their orders, and though they did not like them or care for them, and yet they fulfilled them at the utmost. And that is what is going on here with this statement. And have made a king over you, because God, again, told him to do so. But their true motives, they soured everything. I mean, they had false motives, and they had true motives. And Samuel knew what the true motives were, and he called them out on it. He called them out on it. Well, they, they did tell him, they, they tipped their hand in chapter 8, and they said that we also may have, that we also may be like the nations in having a king. And that must have broken his heart. Pause here to remind us all that after all these years of ministry, of this God-centered ministry, a splendid, blameless ministry, it was stacked with heartache stacked with things that just didn't turn out the way he thought. He grew up in an environment where Hophni and Phinehas were big disappointments and big sinners, and I'm sure that just disturbed him. It also contributed to his understanding of how to serve by knowing what not to do. Well, the people had come to a place where they wanted to fit in, with those who rejected Yahweh. And it's not a pleasant thing. I'm thinking about doing a topical again on this verse because uh, it looks like it's, it's needed. But some of you may not be familiar with just this shocking passage in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 19. It is quite appropriate. 
Jehoshaphat was a king who loved God. He was a good king. But he just could not pick the right friends. He just gravitated when he had no reason to. And it almost cost him his life on more than one, more than one occasion. And we pick it up in Second Chronicles 19. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. Well, he had been out with Ahab and almost killed. And, and when he comes back, and Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, that is a prophet, went out to meet him. So here's the king coming back. He survives. And here he sees the prophet coming out to him. And this is what the prophet says. And said to the king Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate Yahweh? Man, that had to get him right between the eyes. Because Jehoshaphat loved the Lord. He wasn't like, you know, Ahab who would like, you know, spin it around. It cut deep. I want to read that again. Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate Yahweh? Therefore, the wrath of Yahweh is on you. Oh, man. Then he goes on, nevertheless, God is good to you, Jehoshaphat. So that goes in with a verse that I've said, I think now, four times in a row, four sessions in a row in the pulpit. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. I'm probably doing my topical now. I gotta move on. I don't want to, but I'll, I'll repeat it. That's all because it needs to be repeated if it is of the Lord. There are those that say they love Jesus, and if Satan himself were running for office and they knew it was Satan, they would still vote for him. This is the insanity we're seeing in people. Christians saying, I love the Lord, and they are empowering those who hate Jesus Christ at the voting booth. And in the little circles they run in, with the little comments that they make. Should, should any pastor be silent when he knows about this kind of stupidity going on? Because if it's not fixed, and the wrath of God falls on them for it, There'll be nothing anybody can do. And that is what Samuel is going to tell them at the end of this chapter. He's saying, if you don't follow God, even your king won't be able to help you. The judgment will fall. We don't like having our conscience spoken to and our conscience is guilty. That's why a lot of people don't want to go to church. That's why don't, some don't want to come back. That's why many of the youth, once they get old enough, they're gone. They don't want to hear it. They want to be free to sin without the sting on the conscience. And I guess many churches have succumbed to that and they don't preach those things. So they go out shop for one that will just say nice things to them about, oh, don't worry, God loves you. You can vote for Satan if you want. You can go out with those who hate Yahweh and still go down to the temple and offer sacrifices and sing praises to the Lord. This is the kind of stuff that the prophet faced. His strategy, Samuel's, obviously, was to just stay centered on God and not get tied up with the failures. All right, there were the Hophni's and the Phineas, and there were others that were just, eventually, there's going to be Saul. He still stays focused on what he's supposed to do. And therein lies a great lesson for all of us. No matter what, a thousand may fall at my side, ten thousand at my right hand, but it shall not come near me because I will be centered on the Lord. That's why. And this kind of behavior is very attractive to those who are attracted to truth in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, and now here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. You got what you asked for. Here he is. It's not a bitterness. It certainly is a sting in Samuel's heart because he, he takes this as a personal rejection. How can he not? Even though it really is not. They couldn't say, and that's going to come out too, they couldn't say, well, this is what you did wrong. They're going to say, Yo, your kids did this, the other nations of kings, we want to do this. We want to be modern. We want to flow with the culture. We want to run with the herd and not be led in the flock. From Moses to Samuel... 
God has always sent deliverers to recover his people from their spiritual failures. And uh, to this day, there, he, he sends people to help others recover spiritually. Or else, how does anybody get saved? He says, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. Well, we know the sons were corrupt. And I, that's a, telling us that he's an older man with adult children. Uh, but this is also what the people used. Going back to 1 Samuel 8, and they said to Samuel, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. I reread that because it's that important. When the Christians, when the church begins to look to the world for spiritual solutions, is dead already. We look to the word of God for, for how we should behave in life. And we care that others would uh, join us, but not enough to forsake God to make them happy. Uh, there's that thing called, uh, some call it, I don't call it peer pressure. I call it temptation. The temptation to sin, to be seduced. Uh, you're sitting in a church and the word of God is going out and you got people texting you, adults and young uh, teens alike. And they're not saying, hey, wait till I'm done. I give God his due. And then I'll come tell you how wonderful the sermon was. <laughs> we can hope. So uh, coming back to this, Samuel what is also remarkable about this man is he suppresses his strong personal opposition to what they did. Uh, I would, I, you know, that's real hard. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you find out somebody is wrong and sticking it to you, you want to you attack that. Not them necessarily, but that which is wrong, which is false. And, and that can be a trap. And so now he's doing his very best to start the nation on their new uh, send them off on their new chosen path and to do it uh, properly. He is the bridge that is, they're going to cross over into this next move. Here's what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 99. Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those who called upon his name and they called upon Yahweh and he answered them. So he's got this reputation for praying. And getting his prayers answered because he's got this connection to God. Like Daniel and Joseph. God liked the way Daniel thought. And he liked the way Samuel thought. And he liked the way they reacted to situations that were often deadly. I want that. I want God to like the way I think. I want God to like me. I know he loves me. That's done. Okay, now let's work on this hard one here. Let me be likable to God. Jeremiah 15, Yahweh said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them beat it. He says, go forth. I've, I've helped you with it. I've given commentary. Let them go. They want to behave this way, even if the, these men of prayer, Moses and Samuel, interceded for them, I would tell them, no. As righteous as you two men are, among men, no. It's quite profound. Again, when you cover Scripture and you know the Scripture is feeding the flock, you know that there are those that are turning their nose up to it. I don't care for it. I don't like that. I don't eat that. Do you have any Twinkies? Do you have anything, you know, uh, else to eat other than the Word of God? Oh, I've heard it, Pastor. It's old now. I'm so familiar with God's Word that it doesn't move me. If that's you. You're not fighting. Then they, I don't like you saying that. You're mean. <laughs> I'll be mean. I'll be mean and tell you that Satan has got his lips around your leg. And he's going to swallow you whole. And if you don't do anything about it, that's how it's 
it's, it's not going to go well for you. That is the story of chapter 12. If you don't believe me, when you leave here or when you have a chance, read chapter 12 and you'll find out this is what Samuel's telling the people. Just as Elijah would pray centuries later. Listen to Elijah. 1 Kings 18. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. Man, I want that. He continues, and that I have done all these things at your word. Um, it's, this should be attractive stuff for us. And we're not going to be perfect. We're going to pursue these things. When, you, when we, we look at the book of Chronicles, again, I'm going into my topical to my one day be. Chronicles was published after the nation had failed. But within the story of the Chronicles, the chroniclers have highlighted these profound moments, these great servants, these, these stellar performances in the face of evil. As I just read about Jehoshaphat and Jehu the prophet going out, taking his life in his own hands and saying, why are you buddies with those who hate your God? Why are you helping them? Why are you making them strong? They're going to hurt people. You are enabling them. He says, I have walked before you from my childhood. I'm now back in. 1 Samuel 12, in verse 2. He says, I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. In other words, blameless as men go. I want to park it here for a moment. From my youth, that's what he is saying. From, from the little days, when I was just a little guy loving the Lord. I know I grew up in a home where I was taught to love God. I loved him so much as a boy. And then, of course, the teen years hit. There's no father around, influences. I'm not making excuses. I'm just trying to make heads or tails of what happened. And I turned against God. But God didn't turn against me. And he got me back. All his work. And I, I, I can say I loved God in my youth. But I cannot say I loved him all my youth. First Samuel 3. Now the boy Samuel ministered to Yahweh before Eli. How beautiful is that? That's still doable. You can be born in a church and be born again in that church. And you can look back and say, I ministered in the church that I grew up in. I remember Pastor Rick when he was in his 90s preaching. <laughs> now he's in his 100s and somethings. The psalmist in Psalm 71. For you are my hope, O Lord Yahweh, you are my trust from my youth. Who can say this? Some of you can say this. Psalm 71 again, verse 17. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth. To this day, I declare your wondrous works. That psalmist never let up. Then there was Obadiah. Not the Obadiah, the prophet and the minor prophets. But this Obadiah was hiding the saints from Jezebel's henchman at risk of his own life and of course there was this battle between Ahab and Elijah the prophet and Elijah disappears but he shows up when they're looking for him and he has this engagement with with Elijah which is very telling because you just have you know you have two strong believers here risking their lives for God and yet there's a little friction between the two of them and how to go about this and so Elijah says to Obadiah, tell Ahab, Elijah is here. And Obadiah says, uh-uh, because mm, you're going to leave. I'm going to run and tell him, and you're going to go who knows where, and out in the woods somewhere, and then he's going to turn on me. And this is what Obadiah says to the great prophet. He says, but I, your servant, have feared Yahweh from my youth. That's why he could stand up to the man of thunder. This guy called fire down and killed people. More than once. Do it again. Okay. How can you not read these stories and say, I'll just take that little bit, please. I'll put that on my plate and I will devour that. What else have you? 
In spite of all the things that come against us, the perplexities, the God, when you say, God, what are you thinking? Why? I can do better than this if I had a little bit of your power. That's the flesh, of course. The spiritual man looks at you and your spiritual man looks at your flesh and says, you're crazy. And the flesh is. Jeremiah chapter 1. Then I said, ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. Yahweh said to me, do not say, I am a youth. But you shall go to all whom I send you, and whoever I command you, you shall speak. Oh, man. So Jeremiah said, I don't want any parts of this. I'm too young. He played the youth card. And God said, "Mm -mm, you're going. And you're going to do what I tell you to do. Because he knew what he had in his hands. You know, you ever ride with somebody and you're pushing on the brake because the brake on the passenger side does not work. (laughs) But the driver, hopefully... They know what they have. They know they can perceive how much stopping time. I, I try not to be a passenger because you can't fix this. But, but, but the point is, God knows what he has. He, he, he knows how to gauge this. We don't. We submit to this. Ezekiel. Again, Ezekiel was not a weirdo, but he was eccentric. And he was a musician. <laughs> I'm not saying the dots connect. I'm not saying they don't. <laughs> Ezekiel 4, 14. So I said, ah, Lord Yahweh. Catch how many times connected to their youth they're saying, Adonai Yahweh. Master and God Almighty. All together. So I said, ah, Lord Yahweh. Indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by the beast. Nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. He said, from the time I was a kid, I've been following the dietary laws as commanded by Moses to the Jewish people. He was quite proud in the good sense. Not proud in the sense that I'm looking down at others. Proud and says, this is an achievement, Lord. And I'm happy to say it is an achievement. And God would have agreed. That part is an achievement. Now, here's what I want you to do. Paul, the apostle. We can't forget him. Speaking to Agrippa, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem. All the Jews know. He said, they all know how I grew up. They know my record. They know that I have a good testimony in the law before God and before men. And finally, Timothy. We don't hear Timothy speak. But we hear Paul speak about Timothy. Paul says, from your childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures can do this to you, Timothy. You've known the Scriptures from a child, and you've not departed. You've not said, okay, I'm too big for this now. Oh, it's boring. Heard the story of Daniel in the den. Oh, no, all about the nice boys in the fire. Boring. Oh, David's going to kill the giant. No, it's like, yeah, if I get to go in that fire, I won't be like them. If I'm faced with lions, I want God to shut their mouth too. If I face a giant, I want to run at him as David did and take him out. Now, that all sounds good until we're faced with it. But then after it's all said and done, you look back and you say, I did it. I remember when my dad taught me to ride a bicycle and... I thought he was still holding me. And I was just sailing down the road. He was way back there. And it was, what a feeling. Like, I'm free. I'm doing what I thought I could never do. Verse 3. Here I am. Witness against me before Yahweh and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken and whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe which, by which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. So he gives them a chance. He says, okay, you got, you want to, here's your chance. You want to criticize the pastor? Here's your time. But you, you better hit me with something that is real, not some petty stuff. Well, Samuel, you know, we never liked uh, your donkey. We thought his left ear was a little higher than his right ear. And it just irritated the whole village. No, he's talking big league stuff. 
He's upholding his integrity before them. And he says, if I'm wrong, here's your chance to, to prove it. Solid testimony. Held over decades. Not This wasn't just, you know, I did a whole week of ministry. Especially compared to those others. The man of God opened himself up for criticism to their face and none came. That's the point. The point is not that he opened himself up to criticism. The point is that none came forward. No one said, oh, I remember you did this. Verse 4, And they said to him, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And so there's, it's official. It's in front of everyone now. Verse 5, and Then he said to them, Yahweh is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, and you have not, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. So there is, again, the official, when he says his anointed, that is Saul. Saul is standing there for all of this. That's meaningful, because he'll never come close to anything like this. He's the goofy guy in the church that heard all the beautiful sermons and did nothing with it. That is Saul. And it's so in life. You have people that you know they're doing wrong and you can't reach them. You can be looking right at them face to face. You can be having a conversation with them. You just can't reach them. They don't want to be reached. And you're a little afraid for them. Because you're saying at the end of it, you know, this really isn't between you and me. It's between you and God. You have war with God. And you can sit and you can ignore me and you can him and haw me and you can stomp. But you can't stop God. And if he judges you, nobody can help you. Mom and dad can't get you out of hell. Well, you either believe it or you don't. Does that make the pastors sometimes want to say, I quit? I've preached this, Lord. I've hit this as hard as anybody can hit it just to watch them have it bounce off and frolic on to sin. And then accuse me of being all sorts of a bad guy. Maybe if I start hiding or spooking them, scaring them to death, <laughs> look in their bedroom window at night with a hockey mask on and wig them out. It's me, Pastor Rick. Hi. I'm going to get you again later. <laughs> they respect those carnal things, right? <laughs> All right. Verse 5. Then he said to them, Yahweh has witnessed against you. I read that. Verse 6. Uh, then Samuel said to the people, It is Yahweh who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before Yahweh concerning all the righteous acts of Yahweh, which he did to you and your fathers. And when Jacob had come into Egypt, verse 8, and your fathers cried out to Yahweh, and then Yahweh sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So he's giving them a rapid survey of their history. This is a pattern that uh, he's following Moses and Joshua. Paul and Stephen will pick it up and others. They would review their well-known history and they would allow the Spirit of God to take that, that survey and touch the hearts of the people listening. And the people listening would either have their hearts touched or not. It was up to them. But he reminded them of God's repeated faithfulness in the midst of their repeated failures. In other words, he's saying God didn't give up. You, he had good reason to, to disown you. The prophet is determined to drive his points deep. So what Solomon meant in Ecclesiastes 12, the words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. It just hammers it in. You get the point of the nail deep into the wood or the rock head as it might be. There's a better way. 
There's a, there's, you can learn the hard way or you can learn the better way. And the better way is to perceive it, to see it and grab it. The lesser way is to, you know, don't touch that. It's hot and you touch it anyway. It's quite a common practice amongst people. Well, to our benefit, Samuel makes this review as do the others. But in the end, you know what they're going to say at the end when, they, when he's finished with this beautiful Yahweh-filled farewell speech? In, in, in a way, it's a farewell. Not really, because he's, he's still going to be around, but he's not going to be their leader. In the end, they're going to say, okay, you're right. You're right, Samuel. Now, please, can we move on to our king? Humans, they are defective because of sin. And so he takes all their thoughts back to Egypt. And he says, your fathers were in bondage to the Egyptians. And that was some serious business. The pharaohs, you know, let's kill all the newborn babies, the boys, and the civil disobedience of the midwives, and then of Moses' parents, and many others in scriptures. Said Daniel, he, he, you know, I don't care what the law is. This is my law, and I'm doing this. This is a defensive move. It's not offensive. We don't attack. We uh, defend the faith in that sense as we continue to practice it. Anyway, he's made his point. And we go to verse 9. And when they forgot Yahweh their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the of king of Moab. And they fought against him. Okay, so there's a lot of death and bloodshed going on there. We read it as just several words on a page, but they were broken hearts. They were weeping uh, family members. This was a horrific time uh, in their history, and they brought it on themselves. And then, at the, you know what some of them were probably saying? Where's God? Why does God let this happen? And God had already answered this extensively. And we see unbelievers do this when something goes wrong. Where's God? Well, what do you care? You've had ample time to show that you're really interested in him, and you've not taken it. So you just suffer for nothing. Whereas Christians that suffer persecution, they're suffering for something. And it makes all the difference. As Jim Elliott said, just a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. Verse 10 then they cried out to Yahweh and said, We have sinned because we have not forsaken Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashereths, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. Well, that was what the cycle that the people would be on. If you look at it that way, it's quite depressing. It's like nothing can be fixed. One generation gets it, the next one doesn't. One generation gets it, the next one doesn't. When you look at it that way, it's like, that's a bummer. But when you look at it this way, there are individuals who are getting it, and they're in heaven, and there are others that are going to heaven, and there are others that are going to heaven don't even know it yet. Now it becomes meaningful. And then when I'm told by the Holy Spirit, you have a part in this. If you apply yourself, I'll use you. I'll send people to you. I'll make you part of the process. And if I don't send people to you, I'll make it so that you help those to whom I'm sending the people to. Believe it or not. In verse 11, And Yahweh and Jerubbabel, Bidan, Jephthah, and Samuel delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. Um, Bidan here is, it's either a pseudonym for Barak, because he's the next in line, Jerubbabel, Bidan, or he's another judge that we just haven't heard of. And that's very much possible. We should not think that the book of Judges is an exhaustive list. Uh, there, uh, it could be or not. And we're not told that these are all the judges. There were no others. Um, anyway, uh, Barak it means lightning. And that, again, some believe may have been a nickname. Bedan being his real name, meaning son of judgment. Well, that's how you account for that. Uh, Samuel is mentioned here. In the Septuagint, they use Samson's name because Samson is the one, the next one in the list. I think uh, the Hebrew is more accurate, uh, not the Septuagint. But when they disagree, it's not on a major, major issue. It's not a doctrinal issue. It's just, was it Samson or Samuel? 
And if you say, I pick Samuel, I pick Samson, one's not going to hell and the other is going to heaven because they picked <laughs> the right one or the wrong one. God, I faces the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of not things not seen. I believe God has left things purposely perplexing to force us through the straight and narrow. It wouldn't be straight and narrow otherwise. It'd be broad and wide. I just sassayed into heaven. There was no need for faith. The facts were right there in front of me. I didn't have to do any thinking. It was so easy. That's not how it is. How it is is you've got to cut, you've got to machete your way. It's the Pilgrim's Progress. You know, the story, what a trek. Just to get the burden off his back. Then once he got that off the back, the things like the giant, the castle of despair, where the, the giant would come in and beat them merciless every day. And Bunyan is talking about life, his emotions, his depression, his sense of defeat as he's in jail. And he's not out, he can't get out of me for preaching. He's in jail for preaching the gospel in a nation that claims to be under God. And he talks, he puts it into story, storyline. Anyway, uh, verse 12, And when you saw Nahash, king of the Amorites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when Yahweh your God was your king. There it is. He said, Well, I don't get this, Sam. He said, I don't get it. What do you mean you're asking for a king? You've got one. You want a, you want a lesser one? You, you're not ha- comfortable with a, a judge who is slash a prophet who speaks to you from God. You want someone who you can boast about, that you can dress in fine robes and parade about as an extension of your own pride. You can just project all of your carnality into him. And you're willing to pay for this. We have many youth that have their parents pay heavy money for them to go off to the universities and become full-blown atheists. It's a sick real world, and if you don't fight, you get abused. And that's how it is, spiritually and any other way. Well, the Ammonite king uh, was <clears throat> what they were interested in. Just just having a prophet going around in robes just wasn't cutting it. And the high priest, you know, he was quite a, quite bedazzling, in his garb, but still he wasn't a king. And uh, that's a danger that God's people face, wanting to be like those who hate Yahweh. That's the whole thing with Jehoshaphat. He just couldn't shake it. He just, you know, some, you, you've ever, you can meet a girl or a boy. I've seen it mostly in young women. And they're just attracted to bad boys. It's like, why? Well, because he's bad. <laughs> so is his breath. I don't know. Anyway, verse 12. It's not, and then, you, then there's sorrow, a lot of sorrow. Just, look, life is hard every way you turn, but it's not impossible and it can be made to count. And you who suffer in Jesus' name, don't think for one moment that Jesus owes you, but you will find out that he will not be indebted, that he will bless if not in this life. And that's where faith kicks in. We have to accept that. The world accepts it. They can send their boys to the beaches of Normandy to be slaughtered by machine guns without Christ. How much more should we be focused on what's happening after we get out of here? Verse 13. Now, therefore, here is your king, whom you have chosen, whom you have desired. Take note. Yahweh has set a king over you. I don't think his tone was like mine. Kind of disgusted. I think Samuel was really, you know, wanting to bless the people. Here's your king. You asked for him. You've got, you got him. Me, I'd be rolling my eyes, <laughs> twirling my hair. Well, I'd, have a, I'd get a wig, but I would do it. So they were free to choose a, mo- a monarchy. They were not free to choose the monarch. Uh, not at this point. God hides his reasons sometimes. And uh, sometimes he doesn't. When he doesn't, it's called revelation. When he, when he does, when he reveals what he's up to, his reasons, that's revelation. When he hides it, it's a mystery, and we move by faith. We say, well, he's not telling me, but that's not enough for me to stop following. Verse 14, if you fear Yahweh and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. 
if you fear him and serve him. Dramatic forces here in Samuel's presentation. In the presence of Saul, he is saying this. He's charging the people with sin. If you fear Yahweh and serve him and obey his voice, again, verse 14, and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following Yahweh your God. Again, Saul is right there. And what's going to happen next chapter? Saul's going to just throw all this out the window. Is it dramatic force when someone says, Are you going to church? And you counter with, You going to hell? I mean, that's what the attitude. I mean, why do they get to get the shots? I think it's fine for us to counter those things. It's, you know, I can't believe you're so lame. Why would you want to do that? You know it smells like sulfur there. (laughs) I'm kidding about that. (laughs) Well, okay. Um, I don't care for it, Lord, when your people have no humor. It's really irritating. So let's come back to this. So he speaks again to their conscience. He's bringing it home to the deep part. He's hitting them. And they're going to do one of two things, the same thing people do in church. They're either going to listen or they're going to tune them out. They're going to turn it against them or they're going to turn it for God. Uh, Again, many don't like their conscience spoken to. Uh, David, when Nathan said, you're the man, he spoke right to his conscience. David had a choice. He could have, at that moment, David could have become like Saul. But he decided to become like David. And it's a beautiful story, the life of David. We, we just get so much of an... I don't, Israel would be unrecognizable if God did not give us a man like David. And there would have been no David had there been no Samuel. And you could just link it all the way back. All the way back to, to Abel. What would have happened if there was no Enoch to influence his generation a little bit? What if Noah wasn't the way he was? Certainly Noah would have heard these stories. Verse 15. However, if you do not obey the voice of Yahweh, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, the hand of Yahweh will be against you as it was against your father. Saul, can you hear me? Is there a Saul here tonight? Is there a Saul going to listen later? Is there somebody that has been appointed by God to do something and all the right things are being passed over Because they want to do what they want to do in God's name, which is going to be Saul. As we start opening, peeling back the layers of Saul, we're going to find somebody that speaks the language, talks about sacrifice, talks about Yahweh, but really has no intention of being the king God called him to be. And we find people, I'm a Christian, and they just don't do what God Clearly says they have little things that are big to God. They just, nobody should go to church. What kind of nonsense is that? Where'd you get that? What part of hell did you receive that from? The south side. You can't move them. It's like it's right there in the Word. How do you get to you pick out the ones you like and, and, and black out the ones you don't like? How do you do this? This is not a game. This is your soul involved. Because if you're going to do it like this, going to do it like this everywhere else. And this is why these characters like Saul are in the Bible versus a man like Samuel. So you look at the story and say, who am I going to be in this story? I would look at Gomer Pyle and I'd say, I'm never going to be like Gomer Pyle. I'm going to be like Sergeant Carter. But the only difference is, first chance I get, I'm shooting Gomer Pyle. <laughs> Some of you don't know even know who Gomer is and Carter, but uh, I don't know how to make it into your language. Maybe if we sat down and you paid for the meal, I could figure something out. <laughs> Verse 15. Uh, we, Deuteronomy 28, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of Yahweh, God, observe carefully all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So they knew this was coming. So here, fast forward, here we have Christians trying their best to obey and failing, but still saying, God, I know I'm wrong. I want this fixed. They're not saying it's okay. That's the distinction between people like Samuel and all the righteous Jews versus the ones that played the game. And uh, he's, he's telling them right here, flat out, whether you have a king or not, if you forget God and turn to other gods, neither you nor your king will be able to do anything about the consequences of judgment. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils, 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's not enough. It wasn't enough that they just weren't interested in me. They actually went out and made fake gods to follow. So he continues, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Those are the fake gods. They can't help you. They can quench nothing. And you know what they did when they heard it, most of them? They continued to do it. They knew he was right. I mean, Jeremiah's no less than, how many? I think it was five people, no less than. He said, you're going to be dead in like a week or so. <laughs> they dropped dead. Two of them roasted in the fire of Nebuchadnezzar. He said, you're going to roast. And they did. Verse 16. Now, therefore, stand and see the great thing which Yahweh will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to Yahweh. And he will send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of Yahweh. And asking a king for yourselves, boy, Samuel's laying it on him. He's like, this is my last chance to let you people know. Like the words of a scholar, hard-driven nails, you messed up. But God is merciful, and you have a chance to fix this. You got your king, now do the right thing. Don't, don't make the bad mis- the mistake worse. You say, why did God grant them a king? Because if you shut people down constantly when they're wrong, you, you create a condition where they just go wild. Um, I'm not talking about uh, some things, of course, that must be met with intolerance. Other things, you just got to sometimes take it because the, the, con- the alternative is, is not worth it. And, and that's what God was saying. Okay, they want a king, and they're going to get a king. Because if uh, now I have to deduce the reasoning of God at this point, and he must be saying that uh, if, if I don't give them a king, the, you know, they're going to get, they're going to be worse off. It has to be some reason, because God says in his word, and he does everything with a reason. Well, verse 18. So Samuel called to Yahweh, and Yahweh sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared uh, Yahweh and Samuel. See, there's that man of God praying and getting results. The miracle is found in verse 17. Is today not the wheat harvest? It never rained in that part of Israel during that part of the year. I don't know, mid-May, mid-June. Never, especially heavy rains. And if you, it did have, you have a heavy rain, you were at the risk of flash flooding. And that is why the people were terrified. And so he called for rain out of season. It's like asking for snow in July. Uh, that's how radical. Imagine, imagine we had a church picnic and the pastor gets angry. <laughs> Who drank all the coffee? I'm calling down snow. And, uh, <laughs> and it starts snowing. Get a foot of snow. Uh, that I would like to do that one day. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't repeat it. That's a little just over the top, but once would be nice. So it's the wheat harvest. It's not supposed to rain. He calls rain. There, the, there you go. These little things in the Bible that are just quite profound. So they know who belonged to God. Verse nineteen. And all the people said to Samuel, "Pray for your servants to Yahweh your God." Now that's when the people mention Yahweh. That we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking for a king. See, that's what I meant. They're going to say, yep, you're right. Now, back to that royal business. Uh, he, 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 they, they understand. There's no confusion here. It's still, okay, you're right, give us a king. Uh, verse 20, then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh. But serve Yahweh with all your heart. So here the prophet is saying, yeah, you, you goof, but there's a bigger thing. There's something bigger here. Stop f- serving the fake gods. All right? You, you sinned by asking for a king when Yahweh was your king. He granted it. And my opinion was that, you know, he, it was the right, right move to make, obviously. Uh, God did the right thing. But the point that uh, stands out is he is saying, There's more to the story. You're going to get another chance. Verse 21, and do not turn aside, and then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. What is an idol, Paul said? Nothing. And the people, oh, Paul, you know. So in ancient Corinth, the fake gods, the people would bring their 
oxen and whatever animals to offer to the fake gods. And they had so much meat left over that they sold it in shops next to the temples. And if you wanted a really good deal on, on a, you know, beef, that's where you would go. And the Christians got onto that. You know what? This, you can't believe how much beef you can get for a nickel. And they would go and buy, you know, get a idol burger and sit in and tell them, this is pretty good. And then the younger Christians, oh, yes, that meat's been offered to idols. And Paul says, so what's an idol? It's nothing. It's just nothing. But unless I make my brother stumble, I'll have a hot dog somewhere else, pay 50 cents. That's the life we live in. Don't be that guy that comes up eating an idol burger. It's really, it's nothing. It's not like you're going into the temple worshiping God. You're just eating the meat. And so Samuel says, for they are nothing, those idols. Jeremiah 6.16. So he says, don't turn aside. As Moses said, as Joshua said, neither to the right nor the left. Stay straight. Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says Yahweh, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. How heartbreaking. You raise up a child in the way they should go and they're not getting it. And uh, the parents have to certainly say, well, you might not go that way. I'm going this way. I'm going that straight and narrow path and I'll leave the door unlocked and light on for you. Verse 22, for Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make you his people. So God is doing his thing, they're doing their thing. Okay, let's go back to the parent or anybody that's a loved one. You have a loved one that's not lost and they're on your heart. And there they are outside, you know, twirling around and doing whatever they do. And you are praying for them. And nobody knows you're praying for them that much except you, God, and hell. That's where the fight is. That's the fight. They don't have to know. They don't have to appreciate. They don't have to come to you and say, Mom, Dad, or daughter, son, or whatever the relationship with co-worker. They don't have to come to you and say, Thank you for praying for me. Because we're not asking permission. We'll fight this fight on your behalf. And win. We're not fighting to come out even. We are going for blood. The enemy's blood. And make sure we understand this. Have your little, you know, uh, not little, but your big uh, landmarks. When, if, you, if you drive a certain place all the time, every day for work, have your landmarks with that. I start prayer at this, at this point for such and such an issue. Every single time I come to this overpass or this gas station or whatever it may be, I pray for that person. Don't overdo it. You don't want to burn out, but do it. And just know that the results aren't in my hand, but the prayers are. I'm responsible for this. And, and we, can, we can hurt hell back. We, I think a defiant spirit is necessary to pull off Christianity. Just some do it very lovingly. You know, my pastor Chuck Smith, when he got older, he was so loving in the way he did it. But when he was younger, he was a lot tougher. <laughs> I mean, his presentation wasn't always that way. Me, I, I just have it together. Uh, I don't know. It's not my doing. I just, it's, <laughs> I'm never too harsh. I'm really, I'm really in my head I'm not, but it comes out that way. And it's like, oopsie. Verse 23, uh, moreover, as for me, far it be for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and right way. You see, Samuel says, I don't care what you're doing, but I know what I'm doing. He realized that prayer was action in the spiritual realm. That it's a whole other world. In this world, you put your finger on a, a stump and you hit it with a hammer, you're going to instant pain, instant results. In the spiritual realm, it's not so instant. It's a whole other thing. To pray is to work. Colossians chapter 1. This is Epaphras, who probably was a pastor in Colossae, but he came to Paul to say, Paul, we got big problems in Colossae. 
And so Paul writes to that church and he mentions Epaphras who's with him. He says, as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So there's someone who labors because labor is prayer and prayer is labor. They're connected. And if you pray a lot, you know it's work. So far, I have not missed a night on my knees praying. And I'm a little, you know, sometimes so I feel like, you know, I've got a hitting streak going on. Like, man, I don't know if I can keep this up. I mean, it's something. I mean, man, a heart attack's going to get in the way. I'll be climbing out the bed. i got to get on my knees. Uh, so it started when I was a, a Christ, new Christian and just thinking about praying. And I remembered I never saw my dad go to bed without. I'd always see him on his knees praying before he got in bed. And I said, I'm going to do that. And I managed to pull it off. And uh, I'm sometimes I'm like so tired. I'm like, man, I ate too many of those Twinkies. <laughs> okay, sorry, too much. Let's go back to Colossians 4 this time. So in chapter 1, verse 7 of Colossians, we see Epaphras laboring, working. And then we see him in a man of prayer in, in chapter 4, verse 12 of Colossians. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. And so there he is. He's, he's just this man of action and this man of prayer. Verse 24, only fear Yahweh, serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Fear. This is not fear. This is fear born of truth, not born of terror. Therefore, it does not produce terror. It produces truth. And fear between, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> a holy God and a people who want him. Uh, David, his fear of God was as a son feared a father. Galatians chapter 4. Therefore, you are also no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God through Christ. I love that. It's like he's, he's, he's my father. And that's why Jesus spoke so much of God. They never heard God spoken of as father so much until Jesus started preaching. He says here in verse 24, <clears throat> and serve him in truth. Uh, holding to truth, very important, but being held by the truth, just as important, essential for a victorious faith. Truth is a separator. He says, with your heart, that is all of you, not just, you know, that um, organ. That's not just the feelings, all of us, the heart, the brains, and the will. For consider what great things he has done for you. Oh, gratitude is born out of thinking. You can't be grateful if you're not thought about it. Uh, we, we don't have to sit down and, you know, strike the thinker's pose. <laughs> we can, we just see on, instantly, we know when someone's done something nice. You go through a door and someone holds it, you say, thank you. Because you know your thoughts are, they didn't have to do that for me, and they were nice enough to do so. And when you go through a door and someone doesn't hold it, don't you notice it? Don't you say, I wonder what car they're driving. Where's it parked? Where's my keys? Uh, <laughs> I don't do that. I'm just saying it because I know some of you may have that weakness. No, I don't. Seriously. Verse, uh, anyway, consider the great things God has done for you. Jesus told that to the maniac with the demons cast out. Go tell the good things God has done for you. Anybody here can't do that? Is there anybody listening that can't tell God, thank you for something? And if you start, you'll find there are a lot of things. Verse 25. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. <laughs> just, that's how he's closing. That's in closing, let me leave you with a happy note. Uh, no, he's not, he's not playing around here because he knows where this goes. Uh, he says, do you suppose that because God answered your cry for a king, that your treachery will somehow be excused? Do you think because, you know, do you think that? All the history attests to this. It's true. If you still do wickedly, 
You shall be swept away, both you and your king. Quite profound. Let's pray. Our Father, this evening, again, we are grateful for you allowing your word to be preached. Many have tried to stop this through the centuries. They're trying it to this very day to eliminate the word of God. And so many Christians don't value the preaching of the word of God. We ask that you get us all home safely tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.